Hey there, banditos. Well, we've made it to another Wednesday, or maybe it's a comic book day or a hump day, but around here, we like to call it Dollar Bin Bandit Day. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Mike Farah. And our friend Orrin is on vacation. So Ooh. the man works hard. I know, I know. Look, got to give him some credit, right? He works hard doing all those solo episodes. Well, he deserves a break. So the bald guys with glasses are in charge today. That's right. So <laughs> we are bringing you our interview with none other than Jim Valentino. Uh, Jim has had a, a, a great long career. Um, he's had one of these careers where he has long stints on specific titles, which I always admire about any, you know, artist or writer, uh, because you just you don't see that very frequently nowadays, at least people jump around a lot. Uh, but you may know him from his work on Guardians of the Galaxy and Shadowhawk. Yeah, um, I'm sure, Joe, you would have loved to uh, been at this one. It was Orrin and I tackled uh, Jim's career from soup to nuts, as it, uh, so to speak. And uh, what a career it was. You know, we talked about his start on indie books, you know, get into uh, Marvel and Guardians of the Galaxy, and then the big shift uh, to Image. And, you know, he was where he was publisher for a few years and really managed that transition from you know, these big gaudy visual uh, books to really a diversity of stories. So, um, and this is coming out, by the way, on the day that the last Shadowhawk, sort of the swan song for that character is coming out. So a really kind of nice bow to the story. Uh, So let's hear everything that Jim Valentino has to say. Uh, Mr. Valentino, thank you again for taking the time to speak to us. Uh, such fans of you. And the first question we have is we have for all our guests is how did your journey into becoming a comic book fan begin? Oh God. (laughs) Um, I started drawing from television, from stuff I was watching on television when I was about two. And my father, who was a comic book fan in World War II, noticed that what I was drawing looked like comics. So very linear, very, you know, stuff like that. So he got brought home a whole stack of comic books, which is the only thing he and I ever agreed on was comics. Um, and uh, that was it. It was like a, it was it was like what people describe as a religious experience. I, you know, as my friend Keith Giffen says, you act as if I had a choice. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. So you in terms of breaking in uh, to the industry later on in um, I guess around the late seventies, you started doing some of, you know, your autobiographical comics um, and some small press stuff, some indie stuff. And then um, which is still indie, but you got a gig doing normal man. I'd love to know how that came about and, you know, how you sort of developed your style on that book. I had photographs. I, uh, you know, it was the you know, <laughs> usual way, <laughs> you know, bribe my way in. Yeah, do it. Man. What happened was um, Cat Ironwood, who used to be a, an editor for um, Eclipse, and, and she, she did an, an, uh, an ongoing article in Comics Buyer's Guide. Um, she was commissioned by Dennis Kitchen to do a book about music called Bop. And she asked me if I would do a a story in it. And this is when I was still, you know, 
completely and totally unknown. Um, and at first I pitched her a story based on um, Procol Harum's A Salty Dog. And she sent me back this note and said, what is it with you guys and pirates? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like boys like pirates and dinosaurs, you know, which that should have been a brain thing. You know, I should have said dinosaur pirates, you know, what a great idea. Um, but I didn't. So instead, I wrote a story about the murder of John Lennon, which was pretty fresh at the time. And for people in my generation, it was one of the more pivotal things in, in a growing up with a series of murders and assassinations. That one was, I think, the last super big one for us. So I wrote about, you know, what the Beatles meant to someone growing up with them and all that and how devastating this, this murder was for me personally. And Bop folded, of course. So um, before, I think even before the first issue came out. So I sent it to Clay Gerardes, who was publishing a bunch of my stuff at that time as I was learning the difference between what it looks like on your drawing board and what it looks like when it gets printed. And there is a difference and you gotta learn that. Um, Denny Lubert and Dave Sim were doing a tour around this time and um, promoting Cerebus. And Clay gave it to them. When he gave it to them, he told me, he sent me a note and said, you should send it to them. So I sent it to them. He gave it to them. It arrived in the mail the day that Denny opened it. So she had two copies of the same story. And they were running a feature in the back of Cerebus called Unique Stories. And that there was like a four-page feature at, you know, featuring various people, mostly new, um, that uh, Dave wanted to promote and just get out there. Um, uh, sharing the wealth kind of thing. So um, in Cerebus 50, they published a story. The story was called In My Life after the song, after, if you know the Beatles song. And uh, <clears throat> then Denny <laughs> called me up out of, you know, just afterwards and said, hey, if you want to do a, a series, think about doing it with us. You know, it was quite an offer at the time. But she warned me. She said, you know, Dave's kind of afraid that you're going to get us into trouble. And I said, why? And she goes, because your work is so salacious. It's not really salacious. It's just kind of out there, you know. Um, <laughs> so I thought about it for a little while. I was living in a part of San Diego called Normal Heights. And this friend of mine, Dave Clark, who was one of the, the founders, the teenage founders of San Diego Comic-Con, along with Scott Shaw and a bunch of other guys. Um, Dave had this idea that he wanted to do called Tales of the Innocent Bystander. And it was about a guy who was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. So somehow or another, all this gelled in my head. And I called up Dave and I said, look, I have this idea. And I explained normal man to him. You know, it's basically Superman in reverse. You know, instead of going to a planet where he's the super one, this guy goes to a planet where he's the normal one. 
And Dave thought that was funny. And I said, but it's kind of, you know, kind of like your Tales of Innocent Bystander. And he was like, yeah, cool. Go ahead, do it. So <clears throat> Denny was meeting me at, I guess it was the 1983 um, Comic-Con. And uh, <laughs> I showed, I, I had a bunch of sketches, a bunch of cover sketches and stuff. And just as I was showing her the portfolio, Dave Stevens walked up and said hi to me. And I, I said, dude, <laughs> I had the rocketeer normal man thing. So <laughs> I, I said, I hope you don't mind. Dave burst out laughing and Denny was like, sold. That's it. You know, if you can make Dave Stevens laugh, then that's good enough for us. Uh, what are your impressions of the independent comic scene of the 80s, like from getting into it and because it's really a breeding ground for so many artists and writers at the time. And there was such freedom in it that led to, you know, great things down the road. Sure. And it's a lot like now the um, there, there's independent publishers, obviously, but also a lot of, a lot of that is done online these days. So it's good. I mean, young creators need to learn their chops and the best way to learn your chops is to do it, you know, and that's it. You know, you, you toss things out there. Some things work, some things don't work, but that's how you do it. That's how you learn. You know, Harlan Ellison used to say a writer writes. Okay. An artist draws. Makes sense. Yeah. A janitor sweeps, you know, it's just, you know, all these things, you know, that into it. go with the territory. Do what you're meant to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So how did these roads lead you to, to Marvel? Well, that was several years later. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I, I will say this before we, every single time I, I changed, I went from doing um, homemade comics to independent comics to, um, lower echelon meet, uh, mainstream comics to Marvel comics. Every single time I was called a sellout. Even when we, when we did image, we were called sellouts. And I was like, you know, you can't sell yourself out. If you're doing what you want to do, that's it. You don't have to do what other people think you should be doing. You should do what makes you happy. And regardless what it is. So what happened was, um, I was living in Orange County um, and I'd met this guy named Brian Murray. Brian would go on to um, uh, be the first artist on Supreme for Rob. Um, at any rate, um, <clears throat> Brian was working in animation at the time. He was working at Marvel Studios up in the, the Valley and uh, he introduced me to the producer and I got a gig working at Marvel Studios. So I was working on things like Defenders of the Earth and the real Ghostbusters and stuff like that, doing storyboards. So Brian introduced me to this friend of his named Rob Liefeld. And Rob and I got along immediately, just great. Rob, Rob was in, of the original Image Founders. Rob was the youngest and I was the oldest. And we were almost inseparable for a long time. The thing was, was that um, 
Rob showed me all of the new stuff that I hadn't caught up with for a long time and explained to me what he was seeing in it, you know, plus his own personal philosophies. He was only like 19 at the time. So he was just full of, of piss and vinegar. He still is. Um, anyways, um, uh, he and Brian introduced us and that was it. So Rob and I became very fast friends and supported one another, uh, went to conventions together. You know, if, if I showed up alone, where's Rob? If he showed up alone, where's Jim? You know, it was that kind of thing. I remember one time we were on San Diego Comic-Con had just moved into this new interim building between where they're at now and where they used to be in, in the hotels. And we're driving down the freeway, he and I heading toward the thing. And uh, <laughs> I said, do you know where we're going? And he, and he was driving. And he goes, no, I thought you did. <laughs> oh shit! And said the city of San Diego was right in front of us. I'm like, well, what do we do? And he thought for half a beat, and he shrugged, and he goes, "We'll just follow the pear-shaped people." <laughs> that, that seemed to work. Um, so anyway, so when image was being talked about initially, which was after the whole debacle with the exterminators and all that kind of stuff which you should probably talk to Rob about if you haven't. Mm -hmm. He'd love to tell you all the stories. Um, he, uh, <laughs> he started talking to the three people in the industry that he trusted the most. So that was Todd McFarlane, who was retired at the time. He had quit Spider-Man at issue number 16. And when his daughter, Cyan, was born, um, who's a doctor now, um, he, uh, he retired. And Eric Larson um, and myself. And he and I were off and on studio mates. So Eric signed on immediately, you know, bless his pointed little head. And uh, um, and Todd was Todd was a holdout. I was not on a million selling book, and I did not have a lot of money to to goof around with. And I had five children to deal with. Mm -hmm. So um my ex-wife had three children when we married, and then we had two together. When I found out, she when she told me, I said, what are we going to do with five kids? And she looked at me like I was nuts and said, pretty much the same thing we do with four. <laughs> you know, never argue with a woman. <laughs> Just like they know more shit than we do. Um once and you're then, outnumbered, I hear it doesn't matter. Once you, yeah, once you have three, yeah. then yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. additional one doesn't do anything. <laughs> so uh, um, he finally convinced Todd. Okay, They were heading to New York for the Sotheby's auction. They were auctioning off um, Jim's X-Men number one. Uh, Rob's X-Force number one and Todd's Spider-Man number one. It was the very first comic art auction um, that Sotheby's had ever done. I don't know if they still do them or not. But uh, I get this call from Todd. <laughs> he says that they're, you know, heading to New York. And, you know, typical Todd, he automatically takes control of everything. Like it was all his idea. And he's like, I got Eric Larson in my back in one of my back pockets, and I want Jimmy Valentino in the other. What do you think? 
And I said, are you going to do this? Yeah. You, you're not going to flake out on us, man. You're going to actually do this. Yeah. Okay. Then I'm in. Cause I figured with Rob and Todd, we'd be good. Mm-hmm. You know, it would, it could work. <laughs> so they go to New York, they run into Mark Silvestri in the hotel. They're in a hotel and they run into Mark Silvestri, who's there for, I don't know, an, an X thing or something, who knows. And uh, they tell Mark what's going on. Mark signs on. Then they run into Jim Lee at night. They tell Jim what's going on. Now, Jim's kind of reluctant to do this. So um, he says he wants to know what the numbers are before he signs on. Typical Jim. (laughs) um, But that didn't happen. So the three of them went into Terry Stewart's office the next day and Todd, you know, told Terry where he can shove Marvel comics and uh, that's image. There you go. (laughs) Now jumping back a little bit, when you went from the independent books to Marvel, what was the learning curve to get to, you know, when you're in some, uh, something like Marvel, where it's, you know, it's a corporation, it's, it's a money-making machine. I was really lucky in that, um, nobody else would give me work. So the office that I was in um, was doing uh, um, What If, right? The book What If, mm-hmm. which nobody cares what you do. And what if, in fact, you know, the, the wilder it is, the more they like it. Mm-hmm. So I did a bunch of those. I did a bunch of fill-in works. The actual first thing I did was a King Call story in Savage Sword of Conan, something or another. That was the first one I drew. And then I wrote a Red Sonia story for the book a couple of issues later. And then I did some pickup work here and there. Um, The learning curve had been done at like Malibu and Eternity and places like that where I had done a bunch of covers and started trying to change my style to be more mainstream than it was, you know, less cartoony, more mainstream. but I still had an awful lot to learn. You know, I mean, like I said, you learn as you go, you know, and as, as you start turning out pages, you get better and better. Hopefully um, I never did, but you know, most people do. Um, so anyways, uh, you know, that was it. And did they pitch you guardians or did you bring it to them as I brought it to them? Okay. Um, I brought about uh, Tom DeFalco and Mark Grunewald were um, going to be guests at the Oakland convention at the time. Uh, WonderCon was in Oakland. And it was a very nice convention. Loved that convention. Probably my favorite of all of them, in- including early San Diego. I thought Oakland was just great. Because um, you could talk to people there, you know. Um, <laughs> I remember one year when I was publisher of Image, uh, Frank Miller and I went out to get had to sit on their balcony and have a drink and smoke and talk and stuff. And Frank goes in to go to the bathroom and he comes back and he goes, man, there's like a horseshoe of people just looking at us. I go, why? And Oh yeah. You're Frank Miller. I'm the publisher of image comics. Yeah, sure. Okay. I get it now. <laughs> I'm just thinking it's Frank, you know, we're talking about chicks. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah so um 
Okay, what was the question again? I got about five. Guardians. You pitched it to Tom. Oh, the Guardians. Yeah, I had about five different pitches. One of them was called Young Avengers, which I was going to write and Rob was going to draw. Um, both of us are very big fans of Mark Wolfman and George's uh, Teen Titans. So, you know, it just seemed natural to make a Teen Titans for Marvel. And Tom liked the idea, but he said, we're going to be introducing um, a group of teenagers called the um, New Warriors in Thor in a couple of months. We didn't know. You know, it just seemed a natural thing to do. Um, so there were several others. And one of them, the one the the one I spent the least amount of time on was Guardians of the Galaxy. And that came about because I was looking through, they had this book called the Official Marvel Hand, Handbook or the Handbook to the Universe or something like that. So I was looking for characters that nobody else was doing at the time because it seemed to me that's the smartest way to break in, you know? They're not going to let a new guy, a new one, you know, not trusted guy or not known commodity do the X-Men right away, unless you're Rob Liefeld. But other than that, you know, they're not going to do that. Um, so I, I'm looking for characters and stuff. So I call up Rob and I go, what do you think of the Guardians of the Galaxy? And he goes, I think they look cool, but they don't have a story which was, you know, very much true at the time. So I thought about it. I got up in the middle of the night. It could have been that day or the next day. I'm not real sure. Um, gotten up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. You know, why not do, why not tell the story of the Marvel Universe in the 31st century? It would be like an ongoing what if, basically. So I wrote it down, you know, scribbled it. Oddly enough, I could actually read it the next morning, just beyond belief weird. And uh, <clears throat> so I called up Rob and I told him, you know, this idea. And as we were talking, I came up with the idea of the search for Captain America's shield. And Rob was like, that's it. That's it. Do that. So there you go. We, we hear that um, again and again from creators where these, these big breakthroughs happen on books and characters that are either lying fallow or have been underestimated. And that seems to be like the best situation that a creator can come into because the expectations are low or non-existent and you have sort of carte blanche to, you know, set out your, your grand vision with these characters. Yeah. Think about it. Frank Miller on Daredevil, right? Alan Moore on Swamp Thing. Um, uh, uh, Chris Claremont on X-Men, you know, it's like on, and on, and on down the line, you know, it's true, you know, so if a young creator is out there trying to break in, look for a character that no one else is touching. See if you can come up with something new and interesting about that character. I have a long, um, lying concept for molecule, man. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I, I, I'm going to have to pitch at some point because I don't think anybody's doing anything with Molecule Man. He could be the most powerful character in the entire Marvel universe. He could be, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I think personally that, that Ant-Man is the toughest character in the Marvel universe. And I'll tell you why. 
Thor is a god, right? Iron Man puts on a what's basically a movable tank, right? The Hulk is a big giant rage monster, but Ant-Man shrinks down so small he can ride on the back of an ant, and then he goes out to kick ass. That is one tough M. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> good point. You make a good argument there. I do. Um, Guardians, you were on for for years. Um, yes. which was just an amazing, amazingly long and amazingly powerful run. Uh, what was it like to be sort of in the middle of that? Uh, had you planned out for it to be as successful or as, as long running as it turned out to be, uh, or, or once it got its legs, you had to sort of lay out more road ahead of you to, um, to fill with story. Um, well, anything that you, and any assignment that you get, you know, you want it to last a long time because it's a gig, you know, and that means you're, you know, it's a job, you know, which I think a lot of fans kind of miss that point, you know, when you're doing it professionally, it's your job. That's what you do. Um, so you want it to last a long time. In the case of the Guardians, um, I kept two notebooks, one of ideas for stories and the other one I kept track of the subplots so I could weave the subplots into this into the main story and I had a a self-made rule that subplots could only go for three issues and then they had to be resolved so there were several sub subplots going on all the time throughout the series but I only did 26 issues really now, so that's only a couple of years. Yeah. Because of your success, did they come to you with other projects or other characters that they hoped that you could, you know, sort of revive as well? Or No, they threw a party when we left. I mean, it was like, you know, it was great. <laughs> no, I had a very hard time, you know. Um, um, uh, yeah, unlike... Todd and Rob, both of whom were pains in the ass, but they sold a lot of books, you know. Um, I was a pain in the ass and didn't sell a lot of books. So it was like, you know, I, I was screwed. <laughs> they wanted more guys like Jim Lee, you know. <laughs> he was nice and affable and drew like a god. And, you know, he, he was great. <laughs> Understandable. Well, uh, because, and you mentioned before that you were the oldest member of this image crew. Yeah. It's sort of a leadership responsibility fall on you a bit because you were older. Or no, no, no. Todd was always the first among was always. Um, We always considered images always worked one man, one vote. And except for one time that I can think of, if we didn't have a unanimous vote, we would table it. Gotcha. Okay. But the one time that we didn't, we actually agreed to separate. So when you look at image, there were um, two different sets. There were the guys who had studios filled with young guys, um, and they did group books, and they were always late. Then there were three guys who only did one character. They didn't have studios. And they were pretty much on time all the time. 
there's a lesson there. Um, so because we had one man, one vote, um, there wasn't any real leader, but Todd always took the lead anyways, mostly by dint of personality. You know, Todd's very charismatic. And, you know, we uh, um, we always acceded. Basically, that's not to say that he got everything that he wanted out of us because he didn't, you know, and he knew that. He he would get argued down. And he, he he's a good guy. He would accept it and everything. But, yeah, I'd say Todd is the first among equals. Now, you guys basically had the eyes of the world on you, not just the comic world, but because of what you were doing, it was getting mainstream press. Yeah. And, you know, you had to write a book. You had to make a ton of appearances. You know, there's a lot going on. How were you handling the stress? Because it had to be, you know, pretty heavy at times. It was, you know, it was very heavy at times. I mean, we were working 16-hour days. And, you know, in a lot of cases, the books were late and people were yelling and screaming, thinking we were laying on the beach and, you know, watching nubile young things walk by, which would be a really good gig if they would pay you for it. I mean, you know, um, but uh, that's that's not what was happening. What was happening is we were trying to juggle everything. We went from being mostly pencilers. Mm. Most of the guys were just pencilers. Right. I think I was the only one that was a, a penciler and a writer. Um, but um, we went from doing that just one job, basically, or, or two jobs, you know, with a huge infrastructure behind us to having to create an infrastructure. And that was very difficult. Plus, the phones were ringing off the hook. Everybody wanted to interview us. Everybody wanted to know what you were doing, you know, Um and, uh, and, you know, and there were convention appearances and stuff like that that we literally had to do. Um, so, you know, it was tough. It was tough to keep up. But we did, you know. So let's jump to, you know, the book you started uh, when you moved over to Image, which was Shadowhawk. Um, was that a concept that uh, had been gestating for a long time? Or is that one that came more recently in the transition as you were moving over? Part of it was a pitch. There was this guy named Scott Fulop, who was an editor at Archie for a while. And he wanted to revitalize the Archie characters, uh, the Archie superheroes. So he kept on calling the studio for Rob to do um, the shield, right? So I talked to him a few times and said, I have this idea for the Fox. So I pitched him the Fox, which is basically a Batman character. And it was kind of a more violent Batman character. So I dusted that off. Shadow Fox. <laughs> Easy enough. Yeah, it's the way you do it. You know, if you get ideas, you write them down or, you know, something may not work. And it's sometimes you find if you combine a couple of things, you get something brand new out of it. Was it interesting? I mean, did you, you were moving from Guardians, right? Which was a large cast of characters to a right. solo book. Um, was that something you, you know, consciously wanted to sort of flex those solo muscles or just <laughs> that happened to just happened to be the way it went? I've tried over the course of my career 
to always have the next book be completely different from the last book. So Normal Man, Guardians, Shadowhawk, <clears throat> A Touch of Silver, you know, uh, vignettes, the autobiographical stuff, they're all completely different from each other. And um, that keeps me interested and involved. What I found with Shadowhawk was that I was more of a group guy. That suited me better than what Steve Bissett used to call a Ditko roof runner. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the, um, the daredevil type character, that, that kind of thing. Wasn't really my forte. When I was, I'm still a fan, but when I was a kid, when I was a fan, I gravitated towards group books, you know? So like the Avengers was my favorite comic when I was a kid. I bought issue number one off the stands and uh, sat on my back porch and read it until the sun went down. I couldn't read it anymore. Um, it was like just heaven to me. Mm -hmm. um, so books like that were my favorites when I was a kid. So I always thought, Guardians was more my speed than Shadowhawk, which wasn't necessarily my kind of book. But I did it. I tried it. I was going to ask, would 2022 Jim Valentino have written the same book, Shadowhawk number no. one? No. What would be different? Everything. I mean, you'll see when or if you read the last Shadowhawk, mm -hmm. um, the book that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, that was basically the the cons the well not even the concept the the layouts and stuff were done by Philip Tan, so we gave him story credit, but it was actually written by myself and Brian Haberman. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we literally passed the story back and forth um, between us until we were satisfied with where it went. Um, so yeah, it's it's very very different from. Um, what I would have written then. But, um, you know, when, one of the things you realize, you know, as you get older, you know, and start, you know, moving into your hundreds and stuff, is that you change, you know, every decade or so. The, you know, the you now is not the you when you were 14. Right. You know, you're a completely different person, hopefully. God, hopefully. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's like, you know, when 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 I was on The Guardians, I think I was in my 30s or 40s or whatever. Um, so, yeah, you know, completely different person with different experiences than I am now. Would the covers you got, you did on Shadowhawk, they had, I, and I hate the word gimmick, but they, that's what they call them, gimmick covers with, you know, the, the opening tall and stuff like that. Was that something that was pitched to you or did Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. No, the thing was, it started on the first cover that uh, with the, um, it was embossed, blind embossed. It had red and silver foil. Um, the thing was, nobody was doing anything like that. People were doing gimmick covers, but they weren't really thinking about them. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't really using all the things to, to advantage. Mm -hmm. So what I tried to do was stuff that nobody else was doing. Right. Um, that And they were the only cover. So that was another thing. There weren't 47 different covers. It was just that was the cover. That was what you got. Right. So the thing like the fold-up cover, when I came up with that idea, I was at a lunch 
with um, with the uh, printers. And I said, I have this idea for um, a new cover. And they were like, cool, because my covers were real expensive. <laughs> so they really liked them. Um, so I took a napkin and I folded it. And I folded it up and they all like looked at me and their jaws were like dropped. And they said, well, I don't know how we can do that. And I said, oh, it's easy. You just do this. And I made them a drawing of how to die cut it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, that'll work. <laughs> I don't know how I came up with it. I just did. So um, there you go. But I tried to do covers that were interesting and unique. And there was a reason why. Mm-hmm. When you're in a company with the likes of Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, how do you make yourself stand out? Mm-hmm. You know, well, that was the way I could think of. I couldn't outdraw them, you know, and stuff. So, you know, that was that. And this was the time when the speculation market was going crazy. Yeah, we love those guys. I was going to say, did you ever feel that, you know, some of these books that you guys are putting out were, you know, fans weren't really taking the time to read through them. They were just taking them for the speculation or did you have a lot of fans coming up to you saying, hey, I really liked what you wrote. I really liked your art and stuff like that. We have both. Um, It's all the people that bitched about the speculation market, okay? We're mostly retailers who were stuck with books that they speculated on. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is, is complaining about it is it's like walking into a restaurant and ordering everything on the menu and then getting pissed off at the kitchen because you couldn't finish it. <laughs> it's like, dude, that's not our fault. It's not our deal. You're the guys who are doing this, not us. Our job is to make the books. Your job is to sell the books. Once they leave our hands, once they get printed and published, it's up to you to decide what what to do with them. You know, you can make train a puppy on them for all, you know, we care. It it doesn't really matter. Of course, you want people to read the book and to like the book. But uh, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, I mean, what did I think of the speculation personally? I thought it was insane. I'm not a gambler. It's it's like, okay, but you're gambling. You know, when you gamble, you're most likely going to lose. Right? The house always wins. So why do this? But, you know, and they're doing it now with all these these covers and stuff. Luckily, a, a lot of the new ones, you know, I can't complain too much. We just did it with the Flash Shadowhawk. We did a shitload of covers. Um but, uh, um, you know, some people really like that. I mean, the, the market supports what the market supports. That's it, exactly. Yeah. 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 If they'll sell, then uh, you make them. Yeah, no creator controls the market. Right. Okay. Just there you go. And, you know, whatever the market will bear. Right. Interesting segue into your time as publisher of Image Comics. <laughs> which uh, which was sort of this a transitionary period for yes. for the fledgling company. So okay. it was starting to move away from, or maybe forced to move away from, considering how you know things like Top Cow and um, Homage Studios started sort of spinning off. 
um, you basically were part of this managerial move or shift towards a more diverse or diversity of voices within the company and books. Was that when you when you took over as publisher? Was that a sort of a conscious goal of yours to do, oh, or yeah. were you kind of okay? I'd oh, love yeah. to hear yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah. Um, once Jim and Todd had left, okay, half of the company was gone with them, or more than half of the company was gone with them. So Larry Martyr was in charge at the time. Okay, Larry was more. He, he was the executive director, not the publisher. He never wanted to be the publisher. Um, he had to figure out a way to keep the company going, right? So he based his choices purely on the fact of how much money they would bring into the company. So in 1999, if if, if you look back, Image was filled with a bunch of incredibly amateurish books, um, a lot of sensationalistic books, swimsuit issues, all titty books, basically. And that was mostly what it was. And they were selling, you know. When Larry moved over to Todd, I had a conversation with Todd. And he said that he didn't have anyone to take over Image. And I said, I will. And he said, well, Larry doesn't know what to do with it. I said, I do. So I told the guys I needed, needed five years, needed five years to change things around. Um, what I did was I canceled all of the titty books, all of the exploitation books, just all of those, just scorched earth, which almost destroyed the company. And I kept, be patient, be patient, be patient. And then I started building. Uh, Warren Ellis came in. Brian Bentis came in. <clears throat> um, I had all these alternative, independent people, quote unquote, you know, in quotes. Um, to me, it was just interesting books by good writers and good artists and without being genre specific. So I reprinted Leave It to Chance in a large hardcover format. Uh, we did The Pro with Jimmy Palmiani and Garth Ellis and Amanda Connor. We just kept on experimenting, doing different things. The idea, the notion was that I felt Image was a publisher. And I thought we could do better than all those exploitation books. And I thought the better way to do that was to um, create as wide a diversity as possible. So when Eric came on, Eric Stevenson came on about a year later, we would sit down and think about what kind of books we don't have. What are we missing? Who can we talk to? Um, there were people that, that were favorable to him. There were some that were favorable to me. And uh, um, we just worked it as best as we could. Now, Stevenson has continued that um, gratefully through his tenure. Um, which I'm, you know, real grateful for, you know, that he's done that. My idea was pretty much based on what Denny Lubert did with Aardvark Vanaheim and Renegade Press. She just had a wide swath of different books, books that she felt were interesting. That's what I did. That's what I still I do with Shadowline. Yeah, I, I think it worked out extremely well. I mean, I, I struggled to think of a different example of 
such a total turnaround in terms of the content being published from a company within those, you know, years that you're talking about. It's, it's pretty stunning. And then, and you came out of it um, or you image came out of it with such a more sterling reputation as being, you know, the place for, for uh, creator owned books and people to come and, you know, really take new concepts in different places. That took a while, but um, you know, the, the notion was to create a place where people wanted to come. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the first things I did was gorilla with uh, Kurt Busick and Mark Wade and all those guys. Now they're all pretty mainstream guys, you know, pretty much the whole gorilla thing and it failed miserably and we knew it would, but that's a whole nother story. Um, but the point was to get those heavy hitters in there and heavy hitters bring in other heavy hitters, you know? Yep. Um, I remember when San Diego, I think it was 2001, maybe 2002, I can't remember. They all kind of merged together after a while. But John Romita Jr. came up and said, I want to do a book with you. And great, tell me when and I'll clear, clear the space for you. And he goes, don't you want to know what it's about? And I go, I don't care. <laughs> I said, it's you. you know? It's like, you know, I trust you. You, you know, it's like, do, do what, do what you, you want to do, John, and it'll be fine with me. Right. And he was like, okay. <laughs> it's like, that's what you want to hear when you're a creator, you know? Yeah. As publisher, were there folks you had as either editor or other um, management positions that influenced your management style and your decision-making? Just Eric Stevenson. Okay. Literally, just Eric Stevenson. Eric and I, Eric was like my co-publisher. We talked about everything. We discussed everything from word go. I think the first week that he was in, he wanted to call up Alan Moore um, about finishing off the 1963 series, doing the annual finally. So uh, so we called called up Alan, had him, I said, Alan, you're on speakerphone because I'm here with Eric Stevenson. And Eric goes, oh, Eric, nice to see you're with a reputable image partner. (laughs) 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 But he didn't want to do it. So, you know, there you go. But yeah, almost, I I worked pretty much hand in hand with Eric, you know, and and like I said, sometimes he would want to do something I wouldn't want to do. But I just say, go ahead, do it, you know, do it. And, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, I told you so. Um, and, uh, um, so that was the way it worked. I mean, we literally would part for 45 minutes or so. And we both smoked at the time. And then we would go outside and walk and have a cigarette and talk about our next move. And then at the end of the day, we would sit down and, and you know, talk about what we need to do next. So it was really a co- co-publisher thing. Are there aspects of being a publisher that you don't think the average fan knows about? Oh, sure. But they don't need to. Yeah. You know, all they need to know is is the end product. You know, most fans are just, are, are more casual than that. Now, the, you know, the, the, the fan that wants to know everything is usually the fan that wants to break in as a professional, usually. Um, but, um, yeah, they don't need to know all that stuff. They don't need to know the in, inside baseball stuff. Right. Nobody needs to know that. 
I, I can tell you, I, I worked at Marvel for a couple of years and um, I agree with that assessment. It's, it's, even, <laughs> it's very much better if you don't know how the sausage yeah. is made. Just enjoy yes. the sausage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I said, uh, uh, you know, most of the people in the, in the comic book industry, in my experience, are really great people. Most. Absolutely. Everybody knows who the assholes are. Um, but yeah, you know, everybody knows. Um, and you know, they, they, I think most of it is because there are so many very nice people, particularly on the creative end, um, more so than on the the other end. <laughs> Spe- speaking of good people and and good initiatives, um, you've had a long association with the Hero Initiative. Yes. Um, why is that a special place for you? And what what do you want people to know about um, that particular organization? The way I describe the Hero Initiative is it's giving forward while giving back. Okay. It does both simultaneously. So for people like me who have been blessed with an incredible career, a, a dream career, you know, this is what I dreamt about all through my childhood was doing comics, being in comics. And I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones. I, I lucked out at several stages of my career and have had a very long career. You know, now I'm getting ready to retire. This will be my last year. Um, and then I'm done. I've got other things I want to do. Um, but it's been a great ride and it's been a long ride. So, unfortunately, in comics, the way that they're set up and the way that they've been set up is people are freelancers. And a lot of the generation that came before me, unfortunately, wound up in in poverty in their old age. And the Hero Initiative was created to help them to help them with medical bills, with rent bills, with, you know, just getting back on their feet. And I think that's really important. It's sort of like the guys like Mickey Mantle and people like that, that I grew up with in baseball, right? They didn't get the million dollar contracts. You know, they, they didn't get to share in the wealth. And comic creators still don't share in the wealth very much unless they're doing it for themselves. And even then it's a crap shot. You know, you don't know. You never know if what your, what your dream project is, is going to take off. It could tank completely or it could take off, you know, um, but there's no guarantee. So to help people, creators who are in need of help, I think that's a good thing. I think that that's paying it forward um, or paying it back, you know, thanking them for what they did because we're standing on their shoulders, you know, no matter who they were, no matter what they did, um, they gave it their all and wound up with nothing. It's important to, to, um, to support them as best as we can. So that's why the hero initiative is so important to me. I hope that's no, I think it's a fantastic organization and, you know, we agree wholeheartedly um, with that sentiment. And, you know, oftentimes we're talking to alter creators and some unsung heroes and um, they, they 
they, they not only don't get the due that they are, that they deserve, but to your point, I mean, they literally have not been compensated um, to, that to still goes on. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I've just noticed um, paper girls just started on, um, on Netflix. Hulu? I, I don't know. One of them. One of them. Yeah. <laughs> I just saw that too. Yeah. Um, I forget. I have to write things down. Um, and I noticed that with Paper Girls and with Why the Last Men, Brian K. Vaughn must have a really, really great uh, manager or agent because he's executive, he's listed as executive producer. And on Paper Girls, so is Cliff Chang. And um, on Why the Last Men, so is Pia Guerra. The thing is, 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 now that may not mean anything to someone who doesn't understand that end of the business, but executive producers make a considerable amount of money per episode. So I'm very glad to see that. You know, I talked with Jim Starlin about Thanos, you know, and he says Marvel's taking care of him and stuff like that. But in my opinion, they should load up a, a, a an armored truck and pull it up to his garage and dump it out full of money and fill up his garage with money. Um, he should be making it at least part of what Robert Downey Jr. makes, you know, because if it wasn't for him and his creative genius, they wouldn't have had that story. You know, it's my opinion, no matter what they're paying him, it isn't enough. Agreed. Um, so before uh, wrapping up, uh, I wanted to return to the new project that you had referred to, The Last Shadowhawk, oh, um, yeah. give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit of what it's about. From what I can gather, it sounds to me like a kind of one of those farewell tours uh, that, you know, <laughs> a rock band puts on. They're like, this is our last go around and we're, you know, taking out all the stops and here we go. It's um, it's pretty brutal. The um, the conceit is this: um, Shadowhawk was basically created because I felt Batman wasn't doing a good job. Okay, and here's why. I know there's tons of people who think Batman is just the greatest thing in the world because he has no superpowers. Yes, he does. He doesn't trip over his fucking cape. That's a superpower. <laughs> I don't care what you say. Um, the problem I saw with Batman was he would put the Joker in Arkham or somewhere and the Joker would escape and kill again and kill again and kill again. And it's like, okay, so, you know, you're locking him up, but he keeps on getting out and doing the same thing. Now, we all understand as sophisticated <laughs> adults um, or something close to it that um, the reason he doesn't kill the Joker is because the Joker's like a golden goose. You know, every single time they publish a story with him, the numbers go up and they make more money. Um, so that makes a lot of sense on that level. Okay. So I decided that th there's this really strange thing about superhero comics and superhero fans where they don't want their heroes to kill. Superheroes are the only heroes that don't kill. Okay. Think about it. 
every other hero in every other medium kills. Luke Skywalker kills. Okay, everybody else kills. So I thought, okay, he's not going to kill them, but he's going to maim them. He's going to break their backs. He's going to maim them. They won't be able to get out and do the same thing over and over again. And his was very street-level crime, muggers, rapists, people like that. Um, So this story is about a kid who's Shadowhawk, whose father, Shadowhawk, um, crippled. And this story is about that kid's comeuppance. That Shadowhawk never thought about the damage he would do to others by doing this. And this kid is going to take his revenge. And that's what the story is about. And it is just as brutal as you might imagine it to be. He's dead at the end of it. Dang. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, it's it's pretty powerful. Um, at least we hope it's pretty powerful. Is this the ending you envisioned when you started Shadowhawk? No. <laughs> no, but when I killed him off from AIDS the first time, I thought that was it. You know, I have a tendency to like leave projects. You know, it's like, I'm done. You know, now, now I, I seem to have a two-year half-life. Um, so I didn't expect him to come back. But more and more people wanted him to come back. And so I would do new, new series and stuff. And they never really went all that well, I didn't think. You know, not that the people who worked on them weren't good. They were, you know. This is goes back to Shadowhawk's Origin, which was actually written by Alan Moore. Um, so, you know, um, and Alan's no lightweight <laughs> by any means. Um so, no, I mean, but at, at this point where, you know, I'm getting ready to call, call it a day, I thought, and Philip, it came from uh, Brian Haberlin, who I do a lot of work with, um, had a book called um, uh, Lighthouse, Jules Verne's Lighthouse. And I think it was the last issue where he, um, he asked if he could do a Shadowhawk cover with Philip, because Philip's always been a big Shadowhawk fan. So I said, sure. <laughs> what the hell? Um, so they did a, a thing of Shadowhawk and space with a helmet and all that stuff. And Philip, um, <laughs> being ever enthusiastic, he reminds me of Rob sometimes. <laughs> um, he uh, um, said, if you ever want to do something with Shadowhawk, I want to do Shadowhawk. Let me do Shadowhawk. I want to do something with Shadowhawk. He came up with this idea where he wanted to have a bunch of different Shadowhawks. And Shadowhawk, the main one, died at the end, but you didn't really know that. And there were a bunch of kids that were Shadowhawk. And I said, that sounds like that Robin story they did a few years ago. Um, We are Robin or we are Robins or whatever the hell it was called. So he laid the story out the way he wanted it to go. And then Brian and I completely rewrote it. Um, because the only part of it that I really liked was that Shadowhawk died. So that was what we did. So we took his layouts and some of his finishes and stuff like that. And I sat down and did what I call a scribble script. So I went through the pages as fast as humanly possible, just writing at top speed. Okay. So I didn't lose where I, where I wanted to go. Then we scanned that in 
sent it down to Brian. Brian was sitting here at, at this table, actually. Sent it down to Brian after he had gone home. He lives in Southern California. And he tweaked that. And then he sent it back up to me. I tweaked what he wrote. He did the final pass and boom, we're done. Um, and that's the story that we've got. But no, I mean, it just it's one of those things that happened organically. Where can fans follow you, get in touch with you, see what you're up to, uh, I guess, on social media or on the Internet? I'm only on Facebook. All the rest of them confuse the hell out of me. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, 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 you know, Twitter just seems like a madhouse to me. Um, you know, it's sort of like assholes night out. Can I say that? Oh, um, <laughs> you did. It's in. <laughs> so it's sort of like, ah, I, you know, I just don't have time for it. And I don't have the energy for it. And I don't have the patience for it. And it's like, come on. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, so it, it's sort of like I have this dear friend that I've known forever, and she goes on um, uh, Twitter, and then she gets upset and can't work for a week. I'm like, just get rid of it. You don't yeah. need these people. You know, they're not necessary. Forget them. To hell with them. I, I got a, a letter a long time ago from this guy, and um, he had just started a book with his buddy right and the book was starting to take off and he sent me this letter back when people actually wrote letters and said we just don't know what to do you know i mean it's like all we get is shit from people they can't tell our characters apart they don't like the art they don't like the writing but the book is selling and what do we do how do you deal with it so i said well here's what i do those people who like my work are persons of rare insight and intelligence and those people who don't are Neanderthals. So it's like, you know, just separate the two of them. The guy was Peter Laird. So when the turtles took off, I said, Peter, you won. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know what? It, it, the best advice I could give to anyone starting out or 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 as young or anything is, is don't listen to either side. Mm -hmm. All those people who think you're great, don't listen to them. You're not. All those people who think you suck, don't listen to them. You're not. Stay in the middle. Just stay in the middle. Stay focused on your work, what you want to do, and do the best you can. You may not be the best artist. You may not be the best writer. You may not be the best designer or storyteller or whatever. Do the best you can. And there you go. That, that's all you can do at the end of the day. Makes sense. Great advice. And we're back. Uh, great interview, guys. Uh, I gotta say, uh, I, you know, sorry, but I wasn't too familiar with Jim Valentino specifically. Obviously, I've read his work, but, you know, I don't remember everybody. Um, however, great interview. As you said, soup to nuts, and I love both. Um, but um, it was a great interview, very informative, and really interesting guy. Yeah, I wish we had continued to record because after we had finished, um, Jim told us quite the yarn about uh, the beginnings, the origins of the Walking Dead comic book, which is uh, when he was in charge of publishing and, uh, you know, this idea came through and he's like, you got it. You got to have a hook. Uh, you know, it can't just be a book about zombies because at that point, you know, zombies were 
who cared? Um, and so they sold him on this, this grand plan to have the plot reveal that it was some sort of alien origin that the zombie, you know, um, apocalypse had happened. And they get to the end of issue five or six and Jim's like, what happened to the zombie, the alien um, angle? And he's like, I just told you that to get you to sign off on the book. (laughs) (laughs) So um, uh, it was a great story. I wish we had the uh, mics on. Anyway, you got plenty of Jim Valentino, plenty of great stories there. So uh, thank you for listening. As always, uh, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. And we will see you next time. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing. T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S dot com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.